0: Today we turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 15, continuing in our sermon series, picking up in verse 21, as we welcome those visiting with us today as well. Hear now the word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. "'My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon.' "'But he did not answer her a word. "'And his disciples came and begged him, saying, "'Send her away, for she is crying out after us. "'He answered, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.' Instantly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. It's a hot day. They canceled the marathon. Yesterday, Mark and Lois were married. If you were there, you would have seen heat and sweat and bugs and all sorts of stuff. Heat comes in our life. When heat comes, when trials come, when pressure comes, whether it's physical heat or ultimately the afflictions that lead to our death, where do we cry out? Where do we turn? It was January 23rd, 1546. Martin Luther traveled to his hometown to arbitrate a dispute between two brothers. Through his mediation, the two were reconciled, but Luther, at age 62, was weary. He fell ill. He knew his death was near. He said his last will and testament, I am well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. (laughs) A true statement of the result of his bold stand for the gospel through his life. In his last moments, Luther was asked by his friend, do you want to die standing on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? He answered emphatically, yes. Luther's last words were, we are beggars. This is true. He died February 18, 1546. Christianity, loved ones, teaches a gospel of grace. We are beggars who need bread. Christ is that bread. And this woman in Matthew 15, a Canaanite, teaches us of this very thing, of a faith that is persevering, that is pressing on, that is honoring to Jesus. First, we see the request of her faith. This is a new part of Matthew's gospel. Jesus' Galilean ministry is done. He now is going to a distinct Gentile territory, Tyre and Sidon, a place where, as we saw last week, The Pharisees would think all of these guys are unclean. What are you doing there, Jesus? Is he going there because threats are made on his life? In the providence of God, he's there, 30 miles to the west of the Sea of Galilee. You see it on page 7 on that map. Today, this is known as southern Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon are mentioned throughout the Bible. Children, you may be remembered that Hiram, king of Tyre, made a treaty with David. David. He helped Solomon build the temple. But then, a few generations later, Tyre turned away from the house of David. The king of Tyre entered a marriage alliance with Ahab, king of Israel, by giving him a daughter. Do you remember who that was? Jezebel, the pagan, wicked queen. Ezekiel speaks of a prophecy of Tyre rejoicing at the fall of Jerusalem and the Lord saying, I will judge Tyre. Tyre fought on the side of the Seleucids versus the Jews in the Maccabean revolts around 200 B.C. Josephus says that Tyre was among the most bitter enemies of the Jews in the first century. This is the region most grossly committed to paganism. That's where Jesus goes to seek rest. That's the context here. He's truly God and truly man. He needs to rest, but he could not be hidden, Mark says, not even there entire." A woman hears of him. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not coming from the line of Abraham. According to the Pharisees, she's ungodly and unclean and unpure and defiled and has no hope for salvation. But not just a Gentile, she's a Canaanite, Do you remember the Canaanites, children? Going all the way back to Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham in the covenant that when the iniquity of the Amorites or the Canaanites is complete, the land of Canaan or of Israel would be theirs. In the days of Joshua, God sends Joshua to that land He tells him to exterminate the Canaanites. If he had obeyed God, this woman would not have been alive. The Canaanites by this day in Joshua's time had progressed to be as evil as possible. They were given over by God to their lusts, their wickedness. Beyond the point of repentance, they are the most depraved, debauched, degenerate people of that ancient time, religious prostitution, child sacrifice. They are of the seed of the devil, the seed of demons, she is from there. You think she is not going to get what she asked for. She's crying, pleading, persistently, shouting. This is loud. This is not timid, Minnesota nice stuff. Her daughter, about a 12-year-old girl, needs help. When your kids need help, you rush to help them, don't you? Our three-year-old, due largely to my negligence, on a hike, hurt his head. We rushed to get help. Well, people rush to help us and then to get him help. He's fine, thankfully. You do anything you can to get them help. But this is beyond human help. She is sore oppressed severely by a demon. Not by accident, not by random. Remember the place that she's from. Demons, loved ones, torment people. They don't cause you to sin. This is just an aside. It's not the demon of alcohol or the demon of anger. No, that's my sin in my heart when I'm raging in anger. In the first century, the demons and Satan and his minions are really at at work to try to kill Christ and the plan of God and, and stop the... The mission of the Messiah. Do you remember from Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah will come to crush the head of the serpent? All of this is in the background here. Have mercy on me, she says. Jesus, son of David. She calls him by the name that he is. It's remarkable. We don't know how she knows this. She's up there in Tyre, in pagan land. We don't go there, the Jews would say. We don't associate with those people. They're not our people. They're not like us. We have nothing to do with them. The parallel is amazing. How did Matthew begin the gospel? Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite, is in Jesus' family tree, saved by grace. Rahab's confession of faith and this woman's are remarkably similar. Crying out to God for mercy, the parallel stands in contrast to the Pharisees. The Pharisees at this time would have harsh words for anyone who would associate as a rabbi with a woman. There was a sect called the Bruised and Bleeding Pharisees because every time they saw a woman, they would cover their eyes and they would bump into whatever was around them, such as their externalism, their legalism. It's horrific, it's evil. They thought it was a badge of their piety. It wasn't. The Pharisees accused Jesus of sin. The woman calls Jesus Lord and Son of David. She's the only person in the gospel of Mark who calls him Lord. Others do in Matthew. The Pharisees are angry. Anger's in their hearts. They're hating Jesus. They want to put him to death. This woman cries out in faith. The Pharisees claim to be God's people. And take offense at the gospel. This woman says, Have mercy upon me, a sinner. The crowds are not crying out to Jesus as the Messiah, but she is. How would Jesus respond to her? We think we know, don't we? What is Matthew teaching us over and over? What is Jesus like? What's he like, loved ones? Full of compassion. So when you read his response, at first glance you're thinking, this is not what I expect. And you should think that. She's desperate. Jesus doesn't answer her at all. He's silent as a stone. The opposite of love is indifference. I care nothing. I'm cold. Sullen. No response. But she does get a response from the disciples Jesus, send her away. She's shouting at us. We don't have time for this. I'm irritated by her. I'm annoyed. Get her out of here. That's their response. What would happen next? Jesus speaks. But again, not what you would expect to hear. He says he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, the disciples would think, what are you doing up in Tyre, Jesus? Go back to Galilee. You're not going to find Israelites here. Jesus rebuffs her, but she presses on. Secondly, we see this in the lens of redemptive history. She comes closer She's kneeling at Jesus' feet. She's worshiping, she's begging, she's crying out. She has nothing to bring. Her child is afflicted. Lord, help me. Persevering, persistent like that widow in Luke 18. Like Jacob in Genesis, wrestling with God. And you see the back and forth with her and Jesus. Jesus says, it's it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That does not sound nice, kids, does it? In that day, it would even sound potentially more offensive. Think of Jezebel and Tyre and Sidon and the dogs. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel, 2 Kings 9. Dogs are unclean. Jews look upon them as animals that you don't touch and that The Gentiles are dogs. This is not about kids and pets, children and dogs, right? It's about Jews and Gentiles. It's about what Christ has come to do for the world. One scholar says Jesus is so insensitive and harsh and severe and demeaning and insulting that he sinned against her. I want you to just think about that. Let that settle a bit. Is that true? Did Jesus sin against her? If he did, let's pack up our Bibles, let's go out right now, let's leave. We're done. If he did, there's no Savior, there's no Christianity, there's no good news. Because if he sins, he is not the Son of God who came to pay for your sins. Beloved, Jesus did not sin against her. He's not being culturally prideful. He's not putting down Gentiles or women. We can't hear his tone or his cadence. We don't know the nonverbals, do we? But don't you wonder at this point? Did he wink? Did he smile? We don't know that. He called her a dog, but he placed her in the home. The word for dog is a diminutive puppy. The puppy is eating crumbs. As the young says, he's testing her. He's playing devil's advocate. He's being intentionally provocative. He's drawing her out, and that's how she takes it. How would she respond to him saying that? Thin-skinned, defensive, like the Pharisees? Oh, no. Going back at him? Saying, woe is me? No. She agrees with what Jesus says about her. I'm a dog, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's clever, she's witty. She won't give up, she persists, she wrestles. One person says she has turned the tables on Jesus. Now, she hasn't done that, but as this author says, she has slid her way to the table and now is at least under the table. Luther says she catches Christ in his own words. She did so because he wanted her to trap him. We should be surprised by this. Sometimes we just think, "Okay, we got this figured out. No. What bright persistence of faith. How can Jesus get out of this now? He can't. He doesn't want to. He never wanted to. He came to Tyre for this reason. He came to pagan land for pagans. Here's what one author says. She knows what Jesus is saying. She's arguing with Jesus in the most respectful way, and she will not take no for an answer. I'm a dog, but I'm your dog, Jesus. You are my Lord, my master. The dogs eat the crumbs. A crumb is enough, Jesus. The distinction that Jesus is drawing is that, as the Bible teaches, the Jews are God's children. The Gentiles are the dogs. The bread and the food is Christ Himself. It's not offensive, but it's recognizing the whole of redemptive history, that by grace God sovereignly chose Abraham, an adulterer, an idolater, not one because of his merit, but by God's grace, not because Abram was wise or strong, but because God delights to show love to sinners. That's His heart for you too. God's plan was for the Messiah to come from. The Israelites from the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12. Jesus' mission is to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's right. But that's not all his mission. He's in Gentile territory, talking to a Gentile woman on a short term mission trip, showing the Great Commission before he commands it. God's plan is to save the nations. His plan is not for Jews first, and then that fails, and then God goes to plan B. That's not true biblically at all. There's glimpses of this in the Old Testament, aren't there? Even as Jezebel wants to destroy God's people, God shows mercy to a widow from Sidon, of Zarephath, in the days of Elijah. 800 years later, it's happening again. God's covenant with Abraham promised that the seed of the woman would bless the nations. The covenant with David promised a king who would reign forever. The promises of God are all yes and amen in Jesus. To Abraham, to David, to all of God's people, she gets it. Amazingly. The Bible also says the blessing won't come to the nations in its fullness until after Jesus' death and resurrection. As one writer says, Good Friday comes before the Great Commission. So Jesus says to her, you're going to have to wait. But she says, no, Jesus, feed me now. Jew or not, my daughter needs to be healed. She's insisting on Resurrection Day, Easter. Jesus says, okay. But listen, I can only give you scraps now. She says, scraps? I'll take them. This event is the initial phase of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God became man, who is becoming a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49. Psalms 87, verse 4, God says, I will count Egypt, Ethiopia, and Tyre as those who know me. Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish and also arguably the most Gentile of the Gospels. Do you remember the genealogy? Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all of them most likely Gentiles, Bathsheba married to a Hittite. Jesus cannot reject this woman for where she's from any more than he can reject these ancestors in his own genealogy. This is all taking place in Matthew's Gospel. The Gentiles stand out. Who worships Christ when he's born? Not Herod. Not the Israelites, but who? The Magi from the east. Jesus heals the Roman centurion's servant. The Roman centurion, another one, would confess at the cross, this is the Son of God. Right after this, do you see what happens in the verses following in Matthew 15? Jesus goes and gives crumbs to the Gentiles. He heals a deaf man. He heals the sick. They glorify God, Matthew 15, verse 31. The God of Israel, do you see that phrase? Meaning, these are Gentiles who are healed. At the end of the chapter, they're hungry. It's another feeding, this time of the 4,000, this time in Gentile territory. More crumbs for them. The dogs are becoming children by the grace of God. All foods are clean. The divide between Jew and Gentile is being brought down through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Gentiles are being grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. It's all happening this way. How does Matthew end his gospel? Beginning with Gentiles, ending, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Beloved, that's not geopolitical nations. Don't think United Kingdom... Brazil. Don't think that way in terms of geopolitical. Think people groups. All people groups. All languages. All cultures. All skin colors. All backgrounds within the nations. That's who he came for by the grace of God. That's why we're here. The question is this. Who are the true Israelites? Not all Israel is Israel. The Pharisees Lacked faith. The Canaanite woman put her faith in Christ. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. She's a daughter of Abraham by God's grace. How can this be? Because all the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in the one offspring, Galatians 3.16, who is Christ. Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the true Israel of God. God. The whole Gospel of Matthew is showing Christ fulfills the entirety of Israel's promises. It's an encouragement to us to read the whole Gospel through, maybe at one setting, and see these connections. We talked about it as we've been in this Gospel. Jesus is born. He goes down to where? Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel, as a nation, was slaves in Egypt. Jesus is brought out of Egypt. Jesus goes through the waters as he's baptized in the Jordan, the greater Israel, as Israel was brought through the Red Sea. Jesus goes to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He goes up on the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down the mountain to feed the people with bread like God fed Israel with manna in the wilderness. He's the greater Israel. He's the greater David. He's the one wiser than Solomon. Later in Matthew, he'll promise the destruction of the physical temple. As Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God departs from the temple moving out until it stands at the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel 1 2.11. So Jesus, the real glory of God, leaves the temple for the last time, goes to stand on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. There's an article that gets into all these details. It's incredible what he's doing. He is the true Israel. He is the yes and amen to God's demand for perfect obedience. He's the yes to the curses that are threatened for our disobedience. He does this for Israel, His people. You are the true Israel of God, beloved. For every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew and Gentile, as you trust in Christ by faith and repentance, He is your covenant keeper. He fulfills the demand of the law, He bears the curse of your sin. He is raised from the dead. His exile results in glory. Christianity hinges on that greatest sign, the resurrection. The work is done. Your sin and debt is paid for. Your guilt is atoned for. He is the Son of God in the flesh. This passage is teaching us how to read our Bibles, and it's driving us third to worship. What is the response in all of this? She's witty. Jesus compliments her in a way that he never compliments his own disciples. Never once. Oh, woman, great is your faith. He says that as well, the centurion, another Gentile. What a blessing from God to hear Jesus say that. He gave her the faith. It wasn't hers that she earned or that she found by her grace, it's His Spirit that gave it to her. And then, right then and there, Jesus heals the 12 year old girl instantly from a distance. The girls at the house, what Jesus wills to happen happens. Who is this man? He's the son of God in the flesh. He has power over the devil. She believes Jesus will help. She trusts Jesus, has healed her daughter, even though she didn't see it right away. She goes home, her daughter's healed We wanna wrestle with why would Jesus put her off for a while? He's testing her faith. And we're seeing in this our own hearts. How often are we like the disciples? Get away. Maybe you've experienced Christians being unkind to you. Maybe you're cynical about Christianity. The disciples struggled here, they sinned here, we sin here, it doesn't make it right, We need to pray, God, help me not to have a spirit of spiritual selfishness or passive pessimism. It's soul-destroying. It shrinks down the glory of Christ. It brings us to repentance. He says this as she perseveres. He strengthens her faith by saying it. She presses on. She doesn't turn inward. She turns to Jesus. And it's a testimony to those there and to the world still today of what saving faith in Jesus looks like. Empty-handed, humble, begging, not entitled, not look at what I've done, not look at who I've come from. She believes Jesus can help. She casts herself on Christ for mercy. She's a beggar who needs bread. She knows she deserves wrath and judgment and condemnation, and so do we. But she trusts with an assurance in Christ by the Spirit We know that we have our sins forgiven, that we've been made right with God, that we are saved by Christ and his merits. She lives before the cross and trusts in what Christ is, who he is, and what he will do. She didn't say, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She says, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And she says, I need it now. Just like Mary in The Magnificat. He has filled the hungry with good things. The Lord honors a hungry faith. Christianity is not about good people who clean themselves up to get to be on God's team. It's about the Spirit of God bringing sinners to Christ by faith and repentance. Jesus comes not for the well, but for the sinner and the sick. Just like Luther, he's dying. He's a beggar. We are not better than anyone else. We are not self-righteous. We are not superior. We are beggars here. Loved by God. We didn't even know where to find bread, and we didn't want the bread. Apart from Christ, the bread tasted to us like the rich banquet to those dwarves in Narnia. Oh, it tastes like sewage. I don't want it. Get me away from it. I hate it. Until God changes our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we desire sin and self, but God turns us upward by the grace that he gives. He gives us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, to see that Christ is that heavenly bread, to see that we will feed on Christ and never be hungry again, that we will drink of Christ and never be thirsty again. Oh God, open our eyes to behold the beauty of Jesus, his glory, his grace, his love, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He's patient with us. So when you tell someone else about the gospel, spreading the gospel is like a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread and praying that God would open their eyes to see, to taste, to eat, to know that God is good. Jesus is that bread. We love to hear each other share of how the Lord has been gracious to you. At our prayer meeting, we've been encouraged by people sharing of what the Lord has done for them each month. Please come. It's a time to give thanks to God, to hear of the work of the Spirit of God in each individual's heart, to point to the glory of Jesus. It's a time to express in prayer our faith. That's where faith is primarily expressed, Reeves and Calvin say, in prayer, Do we persistently pray? Where have we stopped praying? The Lord says in Hebrews, he must believe that I exist and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Where have our hearts grown cold? Lord, help me to believe that you reward those who seek you. There's two ways that we can fail to let Jesus be our savior, one author says. One is by being too proud. The other is through an inferiority complex. Being so self-absorbed, we say, I'm so awful, God couldn't love me. Here's what Newton says. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness? Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside you. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept and love such a sinner as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, but also too low of an opinion of the person, work, and promises of Jesus. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, Newton says, they're so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little, little better than the worst evils you complain of. Here's how the author concludes. It's just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek him, to refuse to come after his mercy, to refuse to accept it, to refuse to be content with it as it is to say I'm too good for it. False humility, which is not humility, it's pride. Those of small faith are of small prayers. Prayer is the expression of our faith. So what does this teach us? Not to grow weary. Whatever we stop praying for, God, revive my heart. Change me. How does God change us? by keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. It is the beholding of Christ that transforms. As we look upon him with the eye of faith, it makes us more like him. In the gospel, we see Jesus. We see how God hates sin in his purity. We begin to hate sin as God hates it. We see how God loves righteousness. We begin to love it as God loves us. We, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Getting to know God better makes for profound change in our lives. Knowing the love of God for you is what will make you and I more loving. Sensing the desirability of God by the Spirit changes our hearts and our preferences to love the Lord and to love each other. And so, beloved, how do you respond to God's love today? May God give us grace to believe and trust, to worship and obey, to love him and give thanks to him with a joyful heart, to the honor of his name, for such a great salvation as ours, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen.